Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be covering a lot of ground this morning. Um, But don't be alarmed. Uh, It's just a big area. We're actually going to come back to this tonight as well. Uh, But before we begin, a quick prayer. Father, may you open up our eyes to see, our ears to hear. May you keep us from distractions. Uh, Lord, for all of us who are tired and weary, may you give us uh, energy. May you give us focus. May you give us a desire. God, may you show us Christ. May your mercy and grace be upon us in the power of your spirit. For Jesus' sake, amen. So we begin Hebrews this morning. I just want to give a general, some general information for us as, as we start. It's going to be helpful. Um, some information about the book, some information about the themes and how we're going to navigate through it. Like I said, my goal, I have it planned out for 19 weeks, and it's 13 chapters, and it, we can do it. We will, and so by the end of the summer, start fall, we should be finishing up with Hebrews. Um, first, thing, first few things I want us to notice are about the way the, the book is structured. Normally, for old, or New Testament letters or epistles, which your Bible probably calls this the letter to the Hebrews, you normally see the author of it at the beginning, like the, uh, the letter to the Ephesians. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ or a slave of Christ, or Peter, a slave of Christ, or James, a servant of Christ and a brother to, Jan- uh, to John. And so you get in a letter, typically back then, the, the, who, who is it from? Whereas in we write letters today, if we still write letters today, we address who we are at the end. Well, that's not here, so we don't know who wrote the letter of Hebrews. Um, Some people have made educated guesses. Um, As you read it, and if you're familiar with Paul and his letters, you're going to feel like maybe Paul's talking here because some themes and some ideas come across that are very what people call Pauline. Um, but there are other things about it that doesn't really seem like Paul basically in the style. Uh, the second thing is, is with their no title or introduction of the author, it also doesn't say who it's to. So if you look at the page to your left of Hebrews, you see Philemon, you see Paul, prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. Well, Hebrews doesn't have a to whoever. So we technically don't know who received this letter at first, um, but over time in the first century, uh, it got the title to the Hebrews. Um, And the reason being is that a lot of the context you would think would be to a group of people with knowledge of Hebrew history. And so it it gained that title over time. 
But the other thing when you kind of think about that is it doesn't really read like a letter when you read all the way through it. And I recommend doing that. Read all the way through this sometime. It's 13 chapters. Uh, get you a cup of coffee or a Coke, Miss Faye, whichever, and and enjoy reading 13 chapters of Hebrews or listen to it on a Bible reading app. And you'll see that it, to, to most, it has this, the letters from the apostles tend to have subjects that they wanted to tackle. And they weren't always connected or the first half was about something and the last half was about something. This kind of builds on itself almost as if it's got a sermon feel. Like it's got a, like somebody has preached this. And some people think that this was a sermon that was recorded and sent off. Um, and so what makes, the one reason I want to point that out is why we're going to be taking big chunks of this as opposed to how we've kind of been slow verse by verse in Matthew. Because it, the way that it's written, it's really hard to get the concept of what's saying if you just look at a couple verses at a time. That's why we're going to be going from 1-1 all the way to 2-4 today. Now, we can't cover everything in that, and I, I, there's no way I can. But what, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on the major theme in the morning. And then the evening, we're going to dig a little bit deeper on most Sunday nights while we do this. We won't always have to do that, but that's the plan. And then the other thing I want us to know before we start are three themes that are major throughout he, uh, the book of Hebrews. And I, I'll call it the book or the letter. I kind of go back and forth. Um, but the first one is, and I've kind of already mentioned this, is that there's this theme of continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So one thing I want us to understand as we read this is that the, the Old Testament isn't its own story and then the New Testament is, a, is another story or God's first plan of the Old Testament and he had to scratch that and give a second plan in the New Testament. When we go through this and we finish it, you're even going to see it today. You're going to see this today that there is a flow, a, a continuity from the old to the new. Uh, we're going to see references to Psalms, many Psalms, especially in the first few chapters. We're going to see references to prophets, the old covenant, the old sacrifices. We're going to see themes like angels, Moses, Israel, high priest, Melchizedek, the tabernacle, and animal sacrifices. And all those are mentioned to give us to the second main theme, which is probably the most well-known theme of Hebrews. And that's just simply this. Christ is better than all of those whether it be a theme from the Old Testament or a person or peoples from the Old Testament, and that they are actually pointing us to Christ. Uh, we're going to see this today, and that's going to be the main theme on our Sunday mornings, is to find where Christ is better, basically how we're going to work that out each Sunday morning. But... Um, in the evenings, there's so much there's so much good doctrine and theology in Hebrews that you could get lost in it. You really could, but it's so important. And so, in the evenings, we'll we'll dig more into that stuff and pay some uh, pay a little bit more attention to that detail. But the third thing uh, that I want you to know about Hebrews is that it's a a, a book or a letter of warnings, of warnings. Um, 
the you, you could think of it as the major warning as don't miss Jesus, right? If he's better, don't don't miss this. Uh, and it takes many that warning takes many forms, as you'll see, uh, to pay attention, not to neglect, uh, don't be deceived by sin, hold fast, strive to enter, uh, grow, don't grow weary, and many, many more warnings that we'll see. We will see through the book of Hebrews, again, it's just warning us not to miss how much better Christ is than all of these because he is the Son of God. Um, he wants us to keep our eyes off Jesus, or on Jesus. Sorry. All right, so that is our hope and our goal uh, over this, uh, the next. 19 weeks, give or take. Now, let's begin. Hebrews 1, verse 1, point number 1 is this. God has spoken through His Son. Now, as we read, you're going to see, we'll see some subpoints in these first four verses. So let's just look at verse 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. Now let's stop. First thing that should jump out to us in reading those is the word spoke or spoken. Uh, it is the word in these two verses that set the stage for everything else that we're going to read in the book of Hebrews. Um, God has spoken. Uh, and you might be thinking, well, what's so important about God speaking? Um, well, let's, let's think about it this way. Back in the day when everybody was uh, typically watching TV in the evenings, you were watching the major three networks, right? Um, before Hulu and... Netflix streaming, we were all kind of settled in on the three major networks in the evening and watching the same thing. What would happen if uh, the, the president wanted to tell us something? The news bulletin would break and the anchor would say the president has a message and what would happen? Everybody would stop, the programming would stop, and they would all listen. Why would we... Why would we want to stop doing what we're doing, why would the networks cut program programming because the president has something to say? It's probably important, right? It's probably a big deal. Uh, because we know that if someone of such in such high office is wanting to interrupt the lives of all Americans, that whatever he has to say Everyone probably needs to listen. Um, and so if God has said something, if God has spoken, I think it's going to be worth our time to make sure that we know what he said, or that we stop and that we listen, right? Well, according to Hebrews, God does have something to say, uh, but not only does he have something to say, but this is key. He's already said it. You notice it's not God 
speaks or is speaking, he says, God spoke to the fathers and now he has spoken to us. It's past tense. The Holy Spirit makes it very clear that it has been said. So how has he spoken? The first two verses give us detail. The two different ways that he does it, two different time frames, two different audiences. But all coming from one origin, God. God has said something. He communicates it in two different ways to two different audiences, two different time frames. Look what he says. Verse 1, long ago. There's our first time frame. Long ago. At many times in many ways, God spoke to the audience is our fathers. So there's another hint that whoever is receiving this letter or had heard this shares fathers uh, with whoever wrote this. And we're talking about Hebrew fathers, right? So what was the method by which they received the information from God that was spoken to the fathers? The end of the sentence, by the prophets. But, verse 2 starts with but, new time frame, in these last days, in these last days, he, God, has spoken, he has spoken, new audience, not to the fathers, but to us, by his son, the new method. Not by the prophets, but by his son. Now, I want us to make sure that when we read the to us, that the original context of that, the original us, was the writer in whom he is writing to or preaching to. But we have to understand that when we see it in the form of in these last days he has spoken, that we can now be clumped in also into that us. So, but in these last days, God has spoken to us in this church right now. He has spoken to us by the method of his son. Now, it, it just stops there. But I want us to think and understand that I now, Luke, am speaking to you on behalf of God. It doesn't mention that, right? It says he has spoken by his son. So what am I doing up here behind this pulpit or any other preacher? Well, I want us to think, I want us to have this image about how God has communicated and how he is communicating now. So imagine an hourglass. Y'all think of the shape of an hourglass? Kids, an hourglass, what's got sand in it, and you flip it over, and the, and the sand goes from one side into the little round spot, the small path, and goes into the other big side. So we have the image of an hourglass. And remember, and think of it, think of the bottom of the hourglass as in the method of the prophets. You have this big area, right? And there's many times in many ways by many prophets God has spoken, he's communicated something. But then what, if you flip over the hourglass, that big, imagine the sand being the the message, right? You flip over that hourglass 
And all that was being communicated from the prophets is now only being communicated in a narrow way by the Son. No more is it being communicated by the many, by the prophets in many ways and many times. But see, but then after the message has come through the Son, it now falls back into the other side of the hourglass. And now the message of the Son that was declared by the Son has now been sent out to be proclaimed by the church. Or in Ephesians 4, by the, the pastor, shepherd, the teacher, the evangelist. But see, it's not, it's not a new message. And they don't go and speak from any other authority, but through the narrowness that it came to them through the Son. Alright, and so we keep that in mind. And here, basically, this is what we boil down to in these two verses. You know exactly who you need to be listening to if you want to know what God says. You must be listening to His Son. He is the one whom God has appointed to bring His message to His creation. You see, the Son, and I'm specifically only using the name Son because you're going to find out that Jesus' name isn't actually mentioned until middle way through the second chapter, and I think it's purposeful. And so I'm just referring to the second person of the Trinity as the Son, as it is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 1. The Father appointed the Son as the very first apostle. And you think, well, what are you talking about? I thought Jesus appointed apostles. Well, in Hebrews 3, we actually see uh, in verse 1, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our... Apostle just means one that was sent out with a message. And that's what the Father did. He sent out His Son with the gospel. Just like Jesus then sent out His disciples as apostles to spread the message of God. Uh... I guess it was last Sunday school we talked about Jesus in the synagogue and he read from the scroll of Isaiah. Uh, let's just look at it. Luke 4. It's, I, I love reading this. Um, because of the reaction that takes place in the synagogue and how Jesus speaks to them. In Luke 4, starting in verse 18, oh, we'll start in 17, just for the context. Luke four seventeen. So he's in the synagogue on the Sabbath, 
And in verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now let me, let me stop here. Listen. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah, long ago and many times in many ways, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. Isaiah is one of those prophets. So the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, Jesus. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Listen carefully. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's where it gets even better. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll. He rolled up the old way. He rolled up the word of the prophet, the way God used to communicate. He rolled it up, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. There had to have been talk about Jesus before this day because he had been walking around, preaching, teaching, might have done a few miracles here and there before this day. So there was probably whispers about who this Jesus was. He reads this passage, and all the eyes in the synagogues in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So he said, I just read to you the word of God from the prophet. And that prophet said that I am now the one proclaiming God's good news. That day was the fulfillment of God not, no longer speaking through the prophets, but speaking through his son. So now let's go back to Hebrews and let's see, think about what was spoken. And we'll go through this quickly, a little bit faster. What had God said through the prophets, right? What, was, what, what had he communicated? What was being communicated through the Son? Well, Luke 4 helped us out with that a little bit. Um, are, are the messages different? Are they the same? Yeah. They're, they're kind of different and the same. Um, they're different in their form, but they're similar in their substance. And this is, this is what I mean by that. That which is being spoken by the prophets and that which was spoke by the Son, it was all about the same thing. It was just being said a little bit different. So here's an illustration to kind of help us think through this. Imagine if you're playing Pictionary. If you've never played Pictionary, it's when you're, someone is drawing a picture on a board and then you have people trying to guess what the picture is. So imagine God communicate. This is God communicating through the prophets long ago to the fathers. And in Pictionary form, it's you trying to 
watch someone draw a picture from 100 feet away. You're looking at the board and you can see it and you can see the outline. And you're like, what is that a hand? What are you drawing? You can't see it. It's too far away. But the new way that God communicated by his son was if he took that drawing that the prophets were working on 100 feet away and he walked up close and said, here's what it is. Here's the detail. Can you see it? Can you see what they were trying to draw? The messenger, the son, was the subject. He was the topic. That which they were communicating in shadowy language, unclear verbiage, was about the Christ. And when he comes, he cleans it up, connects the dots, and says, I, this new messenger, am proclaiming a message about me, the Christ, the Messiah. You know, we read this morning in Luke 24, before Sunday school class, uh, the account of the road to Emmaus uh, after the resurrection. And Christ said to them, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enters, enter into his glory, uh, be arrested, tried, um, beaten, and killed? He says, though, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus gave a Sunday school lesson like you ain't ever heard on the road to Emmaus. He said the prophets were talking about me. Moses was talking about me. Um, there's, a, there's a saying that I absolutely love. I can't take credit for it. It's I got it from Alistair Begg, if you've ever listened to him. Uh, if you haven't, uh, I recommend him greatly. He says this, We find Christ in all the scriptures. In the Old Testament, he is predicted. In the Gospels, he is revealed. He is revealed. And this is what we are speaking of today when we read about the old ways that God spoke and then the new way that he has he spoke to us by his son. The end of that the end of that um, statement goes from Alistair Begg. In the Acts, in Acts he is preached, in the epistles he is explained, and in Revelation he is expected. All the scriptures are about the Christ. Okay, so who's the son? Point number two. Moving along. Who is the son? A couple quick things. Well, I already mentioned this. The name of Jesus doesn't come, like the name Jesus, J-E-S-U-S, doesn't come until verse 9 of chapter 2. I think this is intentional. And we'll look at that next week and see why I think that's intentional. But the second thing I want us to say before we see who is the son 
which is the big chunk of, of chapter 1, in order for us to really get the point of who the Son is, to me it is a lot... It's, it's very helpful to know what the third point of the sermon is. And it is in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. So basically, the writer says, God has spoken through His Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. Now... Someone told you, you know, you better listen to old Jim. He really got he's really got it figured out. You need to hear what he has to say. Your typical response is, I don't know old Jim, and I don't know what he knows. Who is he? Well, if you know who we're speaking of, if we know what they know, determines whether or not you need to listen. So I'm telling you now. God has spoken through His Son. He has spoken. It's not, it's, not, it's not being redone. The message has been told, and He has spoken. Now listen to Him, and you say, well, who is He? Well, let's look at verses 2 and read verses 2 through 4, and I'm going to trail through this pretty quick. But in the last days... He, God, has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Meaning, the Son isn't just a messenger. He's not just an apostle. He is the possessor of all things. Creation is His inheritance. Let me say that again. Creation is His inheritance. Because he is God's son, he's the rightful heir of all things. But not only because of his sonship to the Father, but also is he rightful heir of all things because he is the firstborn among the dead, which we celebrated last Sunday. He is victor over sin and death. Not only... Is he rightfully heir of all things because of just who he is, but also because of what he has done? All authority in heaven and earth are his. Now keep going. Through whom also he created the world. Okay. So not only does he possess all things, but when God spoke creation into existence, he created it by his word, correct? He said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. Now, if you compare Genesis 1, where he speaks, to, to John chapter 1, both start in the beginning. We see in the beginning, in John 1, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, the Word, and without him was not anything made that was made. How did God create light again? With his word. So not only is the son heir of all things. He is the creator of all things. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. 
Okay, so while the first two things has hinted at something to us as who the Son is, this is pretty clear. He's God. He is God. The majesty and glory of God, the radiance, the brightness of the light that shines from God is found in the Son. He is the radiance of the glory of God. I think about two mountains when I think about this. Two mountains. You think about Moses on a mountain in the presence of God, and he asks God, show me your glory. Show me this radiance. And God said, no, because if I showed it to you, it would kill you dead. But then the other mountain is a mountain that Christ was on. And what he did was reveal to Peter, James, and John as God did to Moses a little bit of the radiance of his glory. You see, he came as a vessel of grace. The son came as a vessel of grace because guess what? While God denied Moses the glory of God because it would kill him, God knew that he had to be in the presence of man in order to save them from their sin. And how does he do it? Well, as, Mo- as God cut a rock, a cleft in the rock, and put Moses in it so that he would be shielded from the glory of God so that he would not die, Jesus came covered in flesh, the presence of God before men so that he could save them and redeem them. That's why he's the rock of all ages, cleft or cut for us. Because he came so that his majesty and glory could be among us, yet not kill us, but yet he would die in our place. He is a vessel of grace. And we see this in the begin, or at the end of verse 4. I'm sorry, at the end of verse Middle of verse 3, we see a bit of the work of the Son after making purification or purging of sin. What did He do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The great work of the Son was to come as the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist says, to take away the sin of the world. He created the world. He upholds the world. Then the world rebels against Him. Sin and disobedience comes and death enters the world. Sin and death come to all men. But the Son has come, came to purify, to purge the world of sin. And one thing we'll talk about tonight, which is a theme in Hebrews 1 and into 2, is about angels, which we don't have time for this morning. But tonight we'll touch on it. But what did an angel say to Joseph and Matthew when we think about purification or purging of sin? The angel came to Matthew, um, came to Joseph and said, He will save his people from their sins. The son whom God has spoken through in these last days 
has come to make purification for sin. Now, to purify something, what happens to the impurities? Do they like magically vanish? No. You put in a water filter in your refrigerator. What happens to the water filter? It gets pretty dirty, right? What do you have? Clean water. This is an image, a picture of what the son did. He took on, in order to purge sin from his people, he had to become a filthy filter. And what do you what do you do when your filter is done? You throw it away. And that's what happened on the cross. The father forsook the son. The wrath of God was poured out on him. He was nothing but a dirty filter of sin. And the wrath and judgment that we have deserved and earned poured out upon his son, the creator and sustainer of the world. I want to, we could spend forever in verses 2 through 4 and 5 through 13 take you to the Old Testament to back up what we read in 2 through 4. Well, we're going to look at that a little bit more tonight. But I want to conclude by reading uh, something from Charles Spurgeon. And I highly recommend if you can listen to, Spurgeon was a, uh, what, they call the Prince of Preachers in the late uh, 1800s. My son shares the same middle name as him, and it's not by accident. Uh, But I want you to hear what he has to say concerning this section. Jesus is God's own son. What do I know about that wondrous truth? If I were to try to explain it, I would only conduct you where I would soon be entirely out of my depth and very likely I would drown all that I could tell you in floods of words. Deity is not to be explained, but to be adored. The sonship of Christ is to be accepted as a truth of revelation, to be seized by faith, though it cannot be comprehended by the mind. There have been many attempts made by the fathers of the church to explain the righteous, the relationship between the two divine persons, the Father and the Son, but the explanations had better never had been given, for the figures used to lie are liable to lead into mistake. Suffice to say that in the most appropriate language of the Nicene Creed, a creed from the early church, says this, Christ is, quote, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, end quote. He is co-equal with the Father, though how that is we do not know. He stands in the nearest possible relationship to the Father, a relationship of intense love and delight so that the Father says of Him, the Son, this is my beloved Son. Indeed, He is one with the Father so that there is no separating them. 
As he himself said in reply to Philip's request, show us the Father, Jesus says, believe me that I am the Father and the Father is in me. If you want to know God, look upon the Son. If you want to know the work of God, look upon the Son. Which brings us to our warning. Chapter 2, verse 1. Listen to the Son. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lest we drift away from it. God has spoken, I've told you. The scriptures told you. God has spoken through His Son. And we have proclaimed who the Son is. And so verse chapter 2, the warning begins with the only word sufficient to start with, therefore. When you see the word therefore, you better understand what you have just read. What I have just told you. Because the warning follows the therefore. We must pay much closer attention to what you have heard. Notice the weight of this sentence. We must not just pay attention, but much closer attention to what we have heard. We must listen to the Son and we must listen good. It is one thing to hear, as I'm sure parents have told their children, it is another thing to listen. Now, do you remember what they said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus had finished preaching? He speaks like no one we've ever seen. He speaks like one with authority. Well, as we have seen this morning, he is the one with authority. His words have power. Chapter 1, we did, I didn't even mention, says that he upholds the universe by his words. So do you think it might be important to pay attention to what he has said? That same word that has the power to hold the stars in the sky is the same words that save you from your sin. Those words of Christ, the gospel, are the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Listen to what he has said. Romans says that even to believe in what the Son has said, you must hear the words of the Son. That is their power. To grant faith, to grant life, come from the words of the Son. So what do I want you to know this morning? If you, not, if you are not paying much closer attention to Christ and what He has said, you are in grave danger. This is a theme of Hebrews. It is solemn and it is serious. 
That's why it's called a warning. If you do not heed the words, do not pay much closer attention to what he has said, what we have heard, it says you will drift away. Now we can classify this warning for an unbeliever. But I would be doing wrong if I told you that this warning is not for unbelievers. Or that for the, it is for those who call themselves believers. That's whom this warning in Hebrews is for. What's the danger? Look at verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There is no escape. There is none. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this this afternoon and have this image in your mind. Uh, the word, in verse 1, when he talks about drifting away, it is, it is this image of floating by something. Seeing it and floating on by it. Now, I, for me, this is helpful. We're in, a, we're in an area where a lot of people float on rivers, right? Uh, we don't have that many dangerous waterfalls around here. But imagine a river with a waterfall that was deadly. If you fall over it, there's nothing but doom and death. This is the image that we are given, that we are on a river floating. Um, with a dangerous, deadly waterfall in front of us. Now, I will apply this to unbelievers. You hear me? As of now, you are aware of that waterfall. You might not have been when you came in, but I'm telling you now, if you walked in as an unbeliever, you are headed for death and destruction. If you go over, you will die. But God has spoken through his son. And he is on, the son is on the shore and he has cried out and told you the waterfall is ahead. And now he is telling you and has told you that he knows how to escape. He knows how you ought to be saved. He is your great salvation. And he says, come to me. And what do you do? You paddle like the dickens to get to him. And you go to him. And he says, come, come, come. And you go, and you go, and you go, and you do not stop until you get to him. That's faith in Christ. That's great salvation, purification from sin. You are in danger of judgment and death for eternity. A waterfall does not do it any justice. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is who he says he is. And he has done what he said he's done. And you will be purified, purged of sin. You will be saved from the danger that is ahead. Now, believer... Hear me carefully. 
Some of us have heard the warning and we shouted back, thank you for the warning. I believe that there is a waterfall ahead and I'm pretty sure that you can help me. Thank you. And then we turn and start looking at the scenery of the river. And what happens? We drift on by. It is not enough. It is not enough to acknowledge the waterfall. It is not enough to acknowledge Him who can save you. Pay much closer attention to His words. You keep going to Him. You keep going to Him. You keep going to Him. And you never stop paying attention. Look at 1 Corinthians, and this is where I'll finish with this passage. And then I want us to look at a hymn. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why must the believer keep paying attention? First Corinthians chapter one, verse 18. You have to pay, got to pay attention to this verse. For the word of the cross, uh, stop there, the word of the cross, where do those words come from? They come from the Son. What the, who are they about? They are about the Son. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. If you have heard of the danger and heard of the salvation and you say you believe and acknowledge it, but yet you do not continue to pay attention to what the Son says, you are, look, you are considering the words to be folly because you'll let the scenery grab your attention and take your eyes off of Him. But to us who are being, notice the the present tense, being saved. It's not, oh, I found out that there's a waterfall. Oh, I found out there's a Savior. Those who are being pulled in by Him, who are being saved. The words of the cross for those who are being saved is the power of God. Do not stop paying attention to the power of the words of Christ. We'll find out in Hebrews that if you do, there's no coming back. You get to the waterfall and you go over. And as he says in verse 3, if you neglect this, There's no escape. There's no escape. What does he say in Matthew 7? The wise man hears my words and does them. That's paying attention to what he has said. Now, before we sing our first song, open up to 368 in your hymnal.
We're going we're gonna to sing this song tonight. And we're going to sing it next Sunday. But I want you to see the first two verses of this hymn. Keep in mind that God has spoken. He has spoken through His Son and we want to listen to His words. Speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion in us your likeness. So you see that? That is a continuation of life. Are you going to eat today? Yeah. Are you going to eat tomorrow? Yeah. What does he say? He says, we want to receive the food of your holy word. We have to have it. We cannot stop. We have to have more and pay much close attention to it. We want it planted inside of us. We want to shape and fashion us into the likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today. What is tomorrow going to be when we get there? Today and the next day and the next day. In all our acts of love and our deeds of faith, speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. Verse 2, teach us, Lord, full of obedience, holy reverence, true humility. I can't think of the verse right now. I think it's Thessalonians, but I'm probably wrong. You will not enter in the presence of God apart from holiness. Holiness. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Test our thoughts and our attitudes in the radiance of your purity. If this is not your life, you are drifting from your Savior. And danger is ahead. Your acknowledgement means nothing. If you are not holding fast to the words of Christ. Come to Him. Cry out to Him. Be baptized in His name. Join His body. And be delivered from the destruction that is ahead. Father God, we give thanks for your difficult word this morning. That you have given it, given, given it to us because you love us and you care for us. And so we cry out to our high priest, our Lord Jesus, that he would keep and preserve, that he would stand before you, our Father, in our behalf, interceding for us until the day that we draw near. May you turn wretches into saints. Cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Bring faith where there is unbelief. In the name of Jesus, amen.